This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenarios that highlight place. Christmas ghost stories. Argus Panoptes. And Ken's extra-dimensional book haul. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, it looks like someone's got the plastic tiles out but not the dungeon tiles robin these are the best tiles these are the (laughs) urban adventuring tiles or maybe they're the forest tiles or the underwater tiles you know what robin the important thing is it's cool tiles because today we're talking about cool locations as the star of the scenario and i think we sort of bounced around this Once or twice, talking about uh, sort of the travelogue scenario, as I sometimes call it, in my heart, where no one can hear. But the goal is to design a scenario to highlight the location. And we've talked, I think, about introducing a city through a scenario. But is your notion that we are highlighting an aspect of the location? Or are we highlighting a location within the location? Yeah. So previously, when we talked about highlighting a city, I took one angle, which was this is a a mimetic fantasy city with a urban geography and a recognizable, you know, economy. And it'll have this neighborhood and this neighborhood, and it'll have a class system. And you take people through the class and there's important people in the city. So it's that sort of quasi realistic fantasy city we talked about last time. A little Kurosawa high and low, but make it with uh, orcs. Right. But this time around, and this is inspired by an aside you sallied forth with a couple of episodes back, you talked about 
you know, just highlighting the coolness of the elf city. And that put me in mind of another reason that people choose to have characters go to locations. And that is to see the fun, elaborate, uh, perhaps even Baroque aspects of their world building. So this is not, uh, we're not going to talk this time about that sort of introducing the urban geography of a realistic city. But the whole point, if you've thought of something that's cool about an elf city, that's supposed to be otherworldly, that is supposed to be the center of this one scenario. It's not about introducing the city so that you can then have seven more adventures in it. But this is cool elf city scenario. So I guess first thing, Ken, we should decide for the sake of our example, what is cool about this elf city that's not just a regular city with different neighborhoods and rich elves and poor elves? Right. Before I answer that question, let me sort of draw a little uh, penumbra around the question, because obviously what we're talking about is a scenario that is designed to express sort of one cool image, possibly tactically, possibly through some other experience, one sort of landmark vibe, etc. So in theory, you can take these same discussions that we're going to have about the elf city and make them be about, you know, a real city in the real world that you still only intend to blow through once and have the one big amazing thing happen. So for example, if you are thinking, boy, I would like to have my characters go to Bangkok in the adventure, but I don't want to run the whole campaign there. This is where you dive in and you find the, the, what, what I call the, uh, the landmarks in, uh, nice black agents, but it's the, the thing about Bangkok that you took them to Bangkok for, and that might be all the cool canals with the boats. It might be the architecture. It might be some seamy aspect of its uh, crime scene, but you're not introducing Bangkok. You're, introducing the vibe of Bangkok and the vibe then ideally either influences play or makes play just look cooler in the glow of the vibe. And I think that's sort of the point to make is that you can do this, not just with, you know, your amazing magical elf city, but with, you know, some location in the ancient past that we've talked about before that maybe you feel like only has the juice for one thing, or you're running a picaresque time travel campaign. And so you're bapping around from you know, Tenochtitlan to Timbuktu, and you're never spending uh, two scenarios in a row in the same place. So with that right. penumbral so, yes. so clearing out of the way. People will note that I tried to get Ken off Earth, but we had to <laughs> we had to go the long way to get off Earth. Right. So Ken, what's the cool thing about this elf city? The cool thing about the elf city, if it is a classic elf city, is that it is, you know, somehow either all in one tree. So you have an enormous sort of Yggdrasili world tree that the city is built into and depends from. And, you know, all the roads are vines and whatever else, or it is in a forest and every individual tree is like a skyscraper and the elves do their businesses, you know, sometimes down among the roots, sometimes up in the canopy. And that is the sort of experiential vibe is that the elves have got some sort of amazingly impossible urban architecture that is nonetheless perfectly in harmony with a uh, big, impressive, beautiful, you know, redwood type trees, trees that just blow you away, like old growth oaks, 
that level of amazing treeness is going on. Right. But just like Tolkien, it's like, oh, well, yeah, oaks are great, but what if they, you know, grew magic fruit too, instead of stupid acorns that everyone hates? It's like, good for you, Tolkien. Let's do it. Right. So I'm going to pick choice A because we're looking at something that is fantastical and the everybody living in one giant tree, I think, is even more fantastical than a whole bunch of less giant trees. So uh, the first question we have is whether the scenario should reveal up top that you are going to the elf city that is a single tree or whether it is a thing that you should discover. And part of that, uh, if you are already working in a world or say on earth where people have, uh, you know, internet and travel guides, you may not be able to surprise the characters with this because they may know all about the ancient elf city and it would be unrealistic for them. It would break plausibility for them not to know. But if you are in uh, one of those fantasy worlds where they're forever coming to a new vista or perhaps all of the characters are rubes from a shire somewhere and just, you know, haven't been boning up on what elf cities look like. I, I think the more exciting thing to do is to have them show up and discover the elf city so that they are both the players and the characters are meeting in a fresh so that when you think of your premise that gets them to go to the wondrous place and arrive there, the more that you can, hold back the better if you mm-hmm. have the choice to do that to hit him with a surprise the, the 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 moment of the reveal is one of the high emotional moments of this kind of story and i will note again that our our buddy professor tolkien uh kind of has it both ways because the story focuses on rubes from the shire as you say but when they show up in you know lothlorien or wherever often you know, Legolas will be right there or Gandalf or someone will say, uh, yes. And he'll, uh, sort of narrate the cool thing about the city as well. So if you've got a character who wants to be, you know, uh, Johnny knowledgeable or is, you know, the daughter of the elves, that's when you sort of feed that character, that player, a couple of notes and either, you know, you vibe together and you, uh, go off her improvisations about this amazing tree. And she will say, um, uh, and those uh, lights that you see in the very top are uh, enormous fireflies. Uh, They only look tiny because we're so far down. And you might think I did not have that in my write-up. That is cool. Now city's got enormous fireflies and they fly around and they do stuff. And uh, so, you know, two heads are better than one. And if you've got a character who would legitimately uh, be able to spoil everyone's fun, co-opt them early into helping produce everyone's fun. Because if there's anything more fun than say, you know, walking into Chicago for the first time and seeing the skyscrapers and that skyline, it's walking into Chicago next to someone who's walking into it for the first time and getting to describe it like Gandalf. And that vibe is something that you can do. And it brings players into the setting, which is of course the whole goal of having done a scenario about the uh, amazing elf city is because you want that bridge Uh, between your narration and the player's lived experience to uh, spring up as fast and as um, uh, robustly as possible, right? Right. And because knowledge skills exist in in most games, you may be telling the player who may know for the first time what their character has known all along. So you can say, well, here's, you know, you can give them the uh, 12 facts about the tree city and have, well, of course, you know everything about the tree city, so you can explain to the others, and you don't necessarily 
have to throw it to them, as you suggested earlier, but you can also just do the thing where, and you know all about this and you know all about that. So the player who's the recipient of this information gets to feel all chuffed that their character knows all this, but everybody at that, that same time is hearing about it. The other option is to have, you know, the local guide show up and provide all of the exposition. And you want to be very careful in how much exposition you provide at once and how how quickly you move to having the players ask questions rather than just reading up a, a bunch of stuff. So you want to, as with any new thing you're introducing in a game, try and get it to the point where they start asking you stuff and it becomes more of a dialogue rather than I'm now going to paraphrase a page of text for you because right. that's uh, deadly. And also that brings us to the next question, which is the extent to which you can have the cool thing revealed over stages, over a series of scenes is also better. So if they, you know, they see the tree from the outside, they see lights and stuff, and you introduce some questions, which they then go and investigate. So it's like, oh, and up near the tree, there's some uh, glowing green lights. And then you don't say, the glowing green lights have been known for thousands of years as the famous, you know, shabadoozable bluey, but rather you have them climb up to, you know, check out the green lights and discover it. And that feels like they are choosing to go there rather than Mm -hmm. being the passive recipient's of information and also it lets you space out the information over the course of the scenario. And that it also, I think encourages you not to, you know, shoot your whole shot in that opener because the, you do want to make that opening reveal as strong and as visceral and as affecting as you possibly can. And I think that maybe is true of any new scene, but for something like this, where literally uh, this is the point is your, your, your camera spinning along this particular wonderful bit of New Zealand that you've, you know, specialed up with your CGI that you should bring some a game to that. But the goal you should have while thinking about your elf city is to have thought, all right, they've seen it's an enormous tree. What's the next <gasps> moment, right? That you can, you know, put them in and maybe you save the fireflies until later on, or maybe you have, you know, some uh, notion about the branches that sort of curve down and have, you know, a tracery of of ladders among them and uh, and the, this notion of it suddenly turning into a vertical like Manhattan becomes a, a, a vision that you have and you want to convey. And you think, oh, well, if it's vertical Manhattan, do they ride giant squirrels up and down the tree? What's oh, no, it's birds, birds. And so then you you introduce the big, beautiful Quetzal like birds that fly around and carry people from a branch to branch of this enormous city sized tree. And then as you are thinking this, you know, to yourself, you know, make your notes. And then at the moment where either the characters are, you know, asking about their next step or they're getting ready to do their next thing. You know, if you feel like it's been a while since you've had that big CGI reveal, throw them another bit off your list of amazing visual or other kind of sense impressions. And then, um, you know, step, I guess, three in this is maybe tie those sense impressions to some aspect of the story or adventure so that it's not just, well, we wrote a Quetzal. That was pretty great. But it's, uh, oh, we uh, fought a bad elf on the Quetzal, or we rode the Quetzal to get away from the mysterious hooded uh, bat people that were chasing us through the city, or or whatever it is, so that it's not just big, amazing city vibe, but, you know, fifth element. It, you know, Luke Besson would not um, uh, sit there like Peter Jackson on his thumb. He's got a big, beautiful thing. Someone's going to be shooting uh, Dane DeHaan in the face uh, on that big, beautiful thing. That's... 
that's what's uh, making the story happen, right? Right. And if you have a separation between the introduction and the payoff, that's all the better. So if you see the birds during the introduction and then there's a fight scene on the birds uh, later, that is even more rewarding than if the fight scene on the birds occurs 30 seconds after you introduce the birds. Mm -hmm. And this brings us to the other major point of designing the scenario, which is make sure that the coolness that you're trying to highlight connects in some way to the core activity of the game, the thing that they're there to do. Or at least the core activity of the scenario. Right. And that suggests, for example, that, you know, some games have multiple core activities. So if there's a chase sequence, if chase sequences are big in your, in your game, okay, it's a chase on the birds up to the green lights. If it's about investigating mysteries, make sure that there's a mystery to investigate that takes you, uh, requires you to go to a bunch of different places and talk to different people. And of course, the you know easiest and most classic one is if it's you know primarily a fighty game. Well, there's a fight in the most exciting part of the cool thing, right? You're fighting up on the treetops with the danger of falling down, and you uh, you know you've got ropes tied to you so that you don't. Uh, plummet to your death and take 28 d6 damage but rather you go swinging back and have a chance of recovering so that if it's a tactical game make the tactics of the fight as well as the setting of the fight relate to the cool scene if it's a mystery it's not just oh uh, yeah uh, one elf murdered another elf it has to be a mystery that concerns the magic of the tree like did someone poison the trees are you are you saving the tree from dying make sure that it connects rather than just being sort of a a tourist sequence that you then go through and then you have an unconnected adventure after that. Yeah. Or, I mean, it could be a relatively one elf killed another elf, but he killed him by throwing him off, you know, a branch of the tree 400 feet above the ground. And it's like, oh, wow, that's very big. And so the, the notion of trying to, you know, track someone down or do forensics on, you know, someone throwing someone off a branch, you know, solving that mystery would have its own innate challenges. And those challenges ideally should spring from, the nature of the backdrop, because again, that is what everything should spring from in this scenario or in a scenario where you're doing this big coolness introduction. Right. And so that brings us to the final part of any uh, scenario, which is the climax, the exciting conclusion. And as per usual, you will have one in mind and perhaps the players will drive things somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that conclusion should be in and around the cool thing. So it's again, the, the big fight scene is is the scene in the tree, not the middle fight scene. The thing that allows you to solve the mystery involves the tree. The revelation of the murderer somehow had, you know, the guy, then, then he runs off a branch, whatever it is. Make sure that the, the, the coolness is recapitulated in your climax. Yeah. Or you've had one fight on the birds and one fight on the ladder-like branches so that the fight is vertical. And then the final fight is up on the very tippy top of the tree so that it metaphorically pulls you through the wonder of this experience. And then at the top, you're jumping along from leaf to giant leaf, like in um, uh, Crouching Tiger, uh, where they're fighting on the on that bamboo. And that's that same sort of vibe. So, you know, when you land on a leaf, it starts to lower and you have to jump off that leaf to get to another leaf. And so it's it adds a tactical richness or a visual excitement to what might be a relatively ordinary uh, combat. Because, again, you're trying to emphasize this is not like other places. This is not like the dungeon. This is not like even the town or the city. This is a wonderful new thing. And so, you know, if you fight on a volcano you know, make sure someone falls in lava or it erupts, you know, the, you know, play to the big, exciting thing about the setting, because that's literally the whole point of the scenario. And if, 
It's just like every other fight you've, you've squandered that and that, and you've trained your players worse to say, Oh, well, yeah, that was a great reveal, but you know what? It's just D and D at the end of the day and we're moving on. And you don't want that. You want them to say, my goodness, when we engage with the setting and we take it seriously and we vibe with it, we are rewarded with an exciting out of the ordinary type experience. And then of course the goal is just to get so good that every experience you run is out of the ordinary or that when you drop back to a regular dungeon, everyone's like, well, you know, uh, it's good to just have meat and potatoes every now and again, just keep, you know, put some flesh on our bones yeah. and let us kill some uh, bugbears and move on. What, wait, this dungeon is made of meat and potatoes. Ah, <laughs> Well, now that we've uh, finished our adventure and moved on to a meat and potatoes one, I guess that's time for us to move on through this commercial to the hut on the other side. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time for us to enter the most spooky of huts. It's the horror hut. But this time around, the stockings are, are nestled with care because uh, we are going to look at the question of Christmas ghost stories. A Patreon backer sent in a question, and I was very excited at the introduction, but the question goes somewhere else. So if you uh -huh. recently asked about ghost stories and started out telling me about your Christmas ghost story tradition, never fear, your question will be answered shortly. But this time around, I want to answer the question that you teased and then went on to ask something else. So it's, it's like a preamble hut because we're answering a preamble instead of the question. Right. But it's a preamble hut in the middle of the episode. So right. let's not emphasize that or the whole thing will fall apart. The whole system will collapse. So Ken, the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas has sort of waned. It's thought of as a quintessentially English mm -hmm. and uh, kind of predates the resurgence of a more traditional Christmas that was that is credited to the influence of a ghost story, to the, the most famous Christmas ghost story of all. And that's, of course, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of wintry horror. And the, the genre of the ghost story that you tell at Christmas is also, I think, 
kind of specific. And the reason uh, now in the sort of Hallmark Christmas we have now, it seems kind of weird to think of Christmas as a time of horror. If, however, you live in a part of the world where winter wants to kill you, as, <laughs> as I do, it makes perfect sense because Yule, the, the solstice, predates the, the happy part of Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it's the darkest night of the year. And it's a time when the, the membrane between the, the living and the dead thins once again, just as it did just a little while ago at, at Halloween. Well, now it's, it's thinning all the more. So we have to uh, gather up our chairs uh, get our hot toddies, sit around and tell ghost stories, perhaps on uh, Christmas Eve. Yeah, I mean, the tradition probably goes back even to, you know, Shakespeare times. The winter's tale is, you know, uh, it's a winter's tale. It's told while you are got nothing else to do because you're sitting inside, uh, not being frozen to death during the Little Ice Age. And that seems to have been something that came out of, at the very least, English country tradition, uh, there's also German traditions of terror tales that sort of have a, a seasonal uh, aspect. But certainly, as you say, Dickens is uh, sort of revived it as he revived virtually all of what we think of as Christmas because he had a Christmas issue to put out every year and he had to do something. And so we thought, well, let's do ghost stories. That's cool. Right. That, that raises the question of why I had to have a Christmas issue every year before he fixed Christmas. But we'll we'll leave that aside. Well, it was the December issue and he needed a theme for something. Right. Well, there we I go. Mean, that's what was going on. And so it, it obviously flourished in Victorian and Edwardian times. I think to my mind, when you say Christmas ghost story, besides Dickens, the thing that pops immediately to mind is M.R. James, who historically told his ghost stories to his students and friends at uh, King's College or at Eton before writing them down and polishing them up so that th- there's that moment, even though very few of the James ghost stories are set at Christmas, plenty of lesser ghost story authors than than James also emphasized the, uh, the, the time of the year. Jerome K. Jerome uh, famously does it. And I think what's going on is that we have a system where Christmas becomes a time for ghost stories because everyone believes it into being a time for ghost stories, which in a way is just like everything else about Christmas, that it's, you know, it's a time for giving and families because we all tell each other it's the time for giving and families. Let's get together and give and family. So there's a, there's a degree of sort of um, mutual self-hypnosis that goes on. And then that uh, pays off culturally, right? Right. A latter day version of this uh, that I would recommend is the anthology High Spirits by Robertson Davies, the Canadian uh, novelist, the author of Fifth Business and and others. Uh, He uh, was one of the founders of a college at the University of Toronto, and it was very self-consciously the most anglophilic Edwardian college, even though that's not what it was founded. And so among the ostentatiously English things he did was he revived or continued the tradition of Gaudy Night, which is an alumni feast uh, near Christmas at Oxford. And at uh, Massey College, he would each year read a ghost story. Uh, and then he eventually, again, like James, wrote them down very consciously emulating James and put them in uh, his collection, High Spirits. And also a Turn of the Screw starts on Christmas Eve. The Raven Poe's poem is set in bleak December, and uh, there's even a bit of Christmas in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's The Festival, right? Yep, right. That's um, He has a, a poem that is explicitly about the, the spookiness of Yule, and then he also has The Festival, which is a story about, again, getting together with your family and celebrating, you know, the true meaning of Christmas, which 
in his case, is being carried into a hellish cavern by worm spawn, uh, who then <laughs> ride evil ducks. So, you know. <laughs> well, like you say, Christmas is what we decided it is. Right. You know, and the evil duck, I feel, is it's Christmas in a way. So, uh, how to construct a, a ghost story, either to actually tell at a Christmas ghost story night or uh, to emulate that style. What elements do we want in it? And I think I, I think we, first of all, Let's hit some things we want to avoid. I think the heavy-handed Santa with an axe thing uh, mm-hmm. has been has been done and is not really the tone you're looking for here. You're looking for sort of the middle ground, the, the meeting point of sort of cozy archness, but perhaps trying to evoke a genuine chill or two along the way. So you, you're, the tone we're looking for is a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, perhaps a little bit old-timey. Uh, but also, you know, if you can sneak in a real scare, that's all to the good. And I think we want to agree for the, this purpose that we're, it's literally ghosts. These have to be yeah. ghost stories. And that has their own challenges because ghosts traditionally are creepy. They unnerve you, but mostly they don't have the opportunity to chase or kill you unless, you know, they're riding a duck. Yeah. But Christmas does not have to be, as you say, you know, maybe leave Santa the hell out of it. But Christmas has the advantage of it is cold and bleak and horrible outside. People have to gather somewhere that maybe they aren't normally. So you have the, we've come to the house. Oh, the house does not look good. It looks sort of haunty, but you have to be there because it's Christmas. And uh, the, the sort of the degree of involuntary presence at the event is, I think, sort of a, a substratum of the vibe that you can pull up and because ghost stories, like all horror stories, you know, one thing that they do is they say things you can't say out loud. And one of the things you can't say out loud, especially in Victorian times is I would rather be in hell than with my relatives. So here we are, we have hell, just a ghost away. And so you can have, uh, you mentioned turn of the screw ghost stories that, that focus on interpersonal tension. Your classic poltergeist type story involves that. Or it could be an unresolved personal tension to the degree of, you know, a murder, suicide or something that caused the ghosts in the first place. And your family dynamic or the dynamic of the characters at the scene is recapitulating a similar dynamic. Ghosts, again, I think are most effective when something that they do has echoes into the present. And the echoes should be more than just the echoes of their ghostly footsteps in the hall, but it should be an emotional or... Uh, some other kind of uh, of a resonance. Um, James, of course, was famously able to to do intellectual echoes, where a ghost poses a puzzle, and uh, the person in the present is trying to solve the puzzle. And of course, that always turns out to be a terrible idea. But that's the the link there. But I, I feel like you know you you certainly there's enough richness in the emotional state that caused the ghost to be created, and trying to replicate that in the story or in the uh, adventure. It's not something you try often, uh, building an emotional tone into an adventure. So trying it for this Christmas ghost story should not necessarily feel old hat, right? Right. And if it is a, a work of fiction, I think we can bring in an element of moralism that I generally uh, don't love to see in in horror because it starts to become about, you know, punishing the lead character who deserves it. But in this case, uh, we can have sort of a, uh, because of course, you know, the granddaddy uh, of the Mall Christmas Carol, of course, is is very much a moral fable, and so you can have characters who, uh, like Scrooge, have the uh, chance to redeem themselves. Have done 
uh, something bad or on the wrong track. And uh, but the ghosts may not be so helpful in, in this story, and they be trying maybe trying to lure the character to the doom, bring him to an ironic comeuppance, and it is up to them to decide whether the ghosts pull them toward their final doom or, uh, in the spirit of the season, perhaps just merely scare them uh, nearly to death. So uh, this is a, a sort of a great forum for the kind of classic. And then his, you know, he emerged and his hair was completely white or he never was able to speak those words again or, or whatever, you know, the lingering psychic effect uh, can be. And so, you know, good old-fashioned comeuppance and uh, uh, moral uh, lessons can definitely be a, a part of this uh, formula. And uh, another thing that you can do with this story, as well as with other ghost stories, is this can be your opportunity to do a psychological sort of a bottle episode story, whether it's a short story that in which the the real drama comes from emotional conflict and and uh, re- and revelation, or whether it's an adventure in a game adventure in which the, the goal, the your real goal is to get the players to inhabit their characters a little bit and play up some tensions and, and force some revelations because a lot of the best Christmas ghost stories, um, EF Benson's between the lights, for example, is seemingly trivial things that happen. And then because EF Benson is really good, you recognize that it was something supernatural and, and, uh, spirity that, that has, um, in, in this case, it's literally just a guy gets lost in the fog is what happens in between the lights, but it's very scary. And you can have that same thing where the payoff is coming dramatically as the characters uh, have their revelations and are in revealed as in a new relationship at the end. But during that, something uncanny and unnatural happened that is maybe the explanation for why this was the moment of psychological breakdown uh, in the same way that The Shining, you know, Jack Torrance was not a healthy, happy guy even before he got to the Overlook. The Overlook brings it out of him in the same way the Christmas ghost visitation is what brings your characters either on the page or in the around the table to their boiling point or their breaking point. And it may be as simple as we're all playing Christmas hide and seek. And so we're all going into different rooms. And sometimes when we go into the room, it's like, oh, I thought I saw someone in that room, but they weren't. Maybe I must have been. Oh, because there's that other person who I've been meaning to give a piece of my mind to. And so I'm going to. And that you can add the uncertainty at the edges or as not a driving force. We all have to split up and search the house for the ghost, although that works. But also it can be a background element that you drop into the scene to add a note of psychological uh, pressure or dread to what is actually supposed to be the player characters hashing out how uh, their characters really feel about each other or how they really feel about some other uh, aspect of the story. Right. And if I was to run this as a, you know, the last game before uh, the Christmas break role playing session, I would definitely have all of the characters gather in the Edwardian manner and uh, have it would be in the game. It would be the 24th and tell all the players ahead of time that they're expected to uh, prepare a very brief horror story, which they don't tell in full, but sort of briefly encapsulate. And yes, three quarters of the players will remember to do this as they sit down, but hopefully they'll be able to pull it off and then improvise, you know, the rest of the horror scenario, drawing elements from each of those stories you yeah. know, that they, the stories are summoning things to this uh, manner, which of course is a, a nexus on top of a hell mouth at the crossing point of several uh, ley lines and uh, also under the, uh, the, the rote of Santa's sled. <laughs> 
And so once we brought Santa back into it again, Ken, uh, we've used up all of our allotted references and we have to head on to the next many-eyed hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Help us renew our Elven City Bus Pass by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Jason Fritz! Lee Candelino! Luke Steyer! Andrew Laliberti! And Neil Kaplan! The classical busts on columns, the smell of laurel wafting through the air, the sound of panpipes tell us that we are in that simultaneously quaintest, but most eldritch and terrifying of huts, the Mythology Hut. And in the Mythology Hut, we're going to look at the simultaneously quaintest and most terrifying of mythologies, the ancient Greek mythology, because Greek mythology is the one that I think we all know the best, that we're most familiar with, and so therefore it is ones where when you hear that something was creepy about that uh, illustration from, Bull from Bullfinch or the Dolares, it hits you a little harder than if you hear something creepy about Hindu mythology, which, if you're like me, you're still trying to wrap your head around, and you, you don't even know who was supposed to have married or killed who, so you certainly don't know why it's creepy that someone did it the other way. But in this case, we have someone who's sort of was creepy from the jump. Robin, we have a guy who, like Texas, has his eyes upon you, Argus Panoptes. And uh, he's quite a fella. Right. And and he occupies that this sort of position. He's not a god, really, but he's he's sort of halfway between a hero and a monster. So he's one of yeah. the more obscure characters of uh, a Greek myth, which I think uh, gives us room to play and do something with them. Because, uh, you know, when Heracles shows up in your game, the players know what's going to happen. It's pretty evident. He's either going to make them go and fight for him, or he's possibly going to try and fight them, in which case they have to run away. But when Argus Panoptes shows up, it's like, what? Oh. And, uh, oh, is the DC organization named Argus? Is that? Oh, oh, what is this guy? And, uh, and, and like a lot of more obscure characters in Greek mythology, Ken, looking into who he is poses more questions than it answers because, uh, you know, the the continuity is not necessarily all, all singular and hammered out. Hesiod, the Lynn Carter of ancient Greek mythology, tried his best to nail the continuity down, um, as did a guy named uh, Pseudo-Apollodorus, who is where we know a lot of these myths that got buried 
from. He, he went around collecting them. But basically, as far as I can construct it, there seem to be two Arguses. And there is one Argus who sounds like, uh, because his name is Argus, he's the hero of the city of Argus, which is in uh, the Peloponnese. He's the son of a uh, hero named Arrestor. Uh, he kills the bull of Arcadia uh, and wears its hide, which is sounding very Heracles, right? Nemean lion, bull of Arcadia. He kills a mean satyr that's running around being even worse than satyrs normally are and much harder to kill. The king of Argos, Apis, dies at the hands of his traitorous, I think, nephew, and Argus fixes that. And so you're thinking, oh, this is a good old standard king story. And then he sneaks up on the horrendous monster Echidna, which is kind of an A-list monster, and kills Echidna in her sleep in her cave. Uh, this is a player character for sure. Right. And so you're, <laughs> you're looking at, at Argos and you're thinking, this guy is basically Heracles, but in the next town over. And he is, because Heracles is classically from Tyrans, which is sort of the rival of Argos in that same stretch of Greece. So you get a sense that either the people of Argos made up stories of their own culture hero to show off against Heracles, or every Greek town's got its culture hero, and the only ones we remember are Theseus from Athens and Heracles from Tyrans, and we don't necessarily remember the amazing labors of Argus Panoptes. And Argus, at this point in ancient Greek lore, only has maybe four eyes, or maybe he's just ever watchful, and it's like he has four eyes. Four eyes is the number of eyes that Hesiod gives him, back in the 6th century, 7th century BC. And then there's the other Argus, who is a giant. And just like all the giants, he just sort of shows up whenever you need someone in a story. He's a giant. He's the son of uh, the goddess Earth, Gia. And he is uh, he just herds cows. That's what he does. Just like Polyphemus herds sheep, Argus herds cows. And Hera, at this point, has a, a little cow that she once watched. And she hires Argus, or tells Argus, because I don't think gods hire anybody. Uh, she picks Gives him Argus. an assignment in the tavern at the beginning. Exactly. She picks whichever Argus we're talking about, hero Argus or giant Argus. And she says, watch over this cow and don't let Zeus. Well, I, I, I can't say on our podcast what Zeus is going to do to this cow. But it's. <laughs> but if you know Zeus, it's unnecessary to say. Yeah, it's typical Zeus activity with this cow. And, uh, this cow is actually the, the nymph or micro goddess Eo. And Eo has been turned into a cow, uh, to escape Hera so that, uh, Zeus could be like, Oh, no, I'm not up to anything. I'm just hanging out with this really hot cow. <laughs> and, uh, Hera's like, Yeah, I've, I, you know what? Here, I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to this cow. And I'm going to get Argus, the ever watchful, uh, to guard him, to guard the cow, guard her. And so, um, Argus is ever watchful. Some point in the myth, he gets more than just the four eyes. Uh, Aeschylus uh, calls him the myriad eyed, which implies more than four. And then by the time Ovid does his uh, systemata systematization on the other end of the stream in, you know, circa 50 uh, AD or whenever Ovid is, he's got the famous hundred eyes. So, right. And at this point, I'm thinking, you know, Ovid's going, Paul Themis, he's a big marquee character. He's got one eye. We need uh, the anti-Polyphemus. Let's right. give Argus a hundred eyes. hundred eyes. Yeah, sounds exciting. Uh, Ovid as Jack Kirby is certainly a vision. So uh, he's got some number of, of eyes. So whenever he sleeps, he only sleeps with two of them at a time. So the other two are always watching that cow. And so Zeus goes to his son Hermes and says, hey, Hermes, you're the god of thieves. I'll bet you, uh, bet you can't steal that cow. 
And Hermes says, bet I can. And he goes down to the cow. He, he scopes it out and he re- realizes that Argus is never going to go to sleep. So the old echidna strategy isn't going to work. So Hermes uh, disguises himself in the most elaborate version of the myth as a goat herd, uh, shows up, says, hey, uh, cow herd, I'm a goat herd. Let's hang out and talk about herding. And uh, he plays his syrinx, his uh, reed pipe. And uh, this is back when it was just invented. And so Argus is like, what is that amazing thing? And they they hang out and talk about yeah herding. You don't even want to tell me about herding, but yeah, eventually watch this cow the whole time. whole time. But eventually Hermes either charms him with his words with a magic spell or plays the pipe beautifully enough that Argus's all of his eyes uh, close, and then Hermes just smashes his head in with a rock. This is not one of the stories that puts Hermes in the best light. No, and then Hermes gets to say his, his name becomes um, uh, Hermes uh, Argafantes, meaning he's the guy who killed Argus. And it's kind of a big deal because it's apparently the first uh, murder by that generation of gods. So that's pretty exciting. Aeschylus then implies that Argus is reincarnated into the gadfly that Hera sends to chase Eo all over the Mediterranean. And Hera then gathers up Argus's eyes, uh, which have, you know, been splattered all over the wall by Hermes and puts them in the tail of her bird, the peacock. And that is, you know, that sort of. Uh, very Greek mythology, just so story tacked on ending uh, that is either a genuinely old, you know, story. What? Why are there eyes on the peacock? Oh, they're magic eyes. Or it's something that, you know, Ovid or somebody, you know, made up to uh, throw into the end and put a button yeah. on it. It seems unlikely that this story started with someone figuring out the peacock and working all the way back to the cowherd riding right. back to the rock story. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, why, are, why are there peacocks uh, have uh, <laughs> eyes on their tails? It's because uh, Zeus was uh, horny for cows. Well, uh, bedtime, everybody. <laughs> Doesn't sound likely. So, yeah, that's the story of Argus or the stories of Argus. And for some reason, Robert Graves leaves all that alone. He's very concerned about Eo being a version of the goddess, and he wants to talk about that. He could give a care about Argus Panoptes. So uh, the job of making up nonsense about Argus, Robin, falls to us. Falls to us. So he's supremely creepy. If yeah. you look at older renditions in, in uh, uh, paintings with classical themes, the hundred eyes are distributed typically around all over his body. Yeah, he just doesn't have a really wide head. Yes. Uh, more <laughs> recently, uh, monster drawers have decided that that's creepy in a bad way, not creepy in a fun way, and they tend more to give him a big old head with a, a hundred eyes on it, which is, as a kid, what I pictured without seeing a, a visual image. And so uh, the idea of a, a super watchful enemy or sentinel is uh, very vivid, that one thing the players... Uh, really hate is the idea that they're uh, being observed at all times. And the idea, of course, is that uh, especially after he comes back as a ghost after being smashed on the head, that uh, perhaps his uh, hundred eyes do more than just see the visible spectrum that he has around him. But perhaps some of them are psychic and maybe he's looking at a hundred different people with his hundred eyes. So you can imagine sort of a, you know, if we go uh, pulp detective with the Greek gods, you know, you can meet Argus in a bar and his eyes can be blinking and it's like, oh, well, yeah, you could hire me to watch this person for you, but I have to have to stop watching one of the people I am uh, looking after. Let me see. Oh, that's going to cost you. So I think it's fun then to think of, you know, taking this character and putting him in different contexts. The idea of a horror character, an outer dark entity that is covered with eyes. And, you know, as long as at least one eye is open. Once they've seen you, they always know where you are and can hunt and follow you is, is 
appropriately uh, terrifying because there's lots you can do with the idea of being surveilled. And of course, that's something that players hate is the idea that they're always being watched by somebody. So that's uh, something that will have a real emotional kicker if they find out that it's uh, Argus that they're up against. The Aeschylus notion that he was uh, somehow reincarnated into the gadfly, of course, makes me think of an Argus with fly eyes that are like multiply segmented and uh, they can open not just in his face, but all over his body or, you know, you know, very Cronenberg body horror uh, Argus where, you know, he's got an eye in his armpit or, you know, wherever, you know, instead of plague buboes, uh, he grows uh, eyes and they sort of burst and pustulate. So you're, you know, half a step away, obviously, from Lovecraft Shoggoth when you talk about creatures with a bunch of eyes that will implacably pursue you or that exist to guard uh, a magical spot or treasure. So Argus can be the sort of remnant myth of the Shoggoth. And maybe there's a Shoggoth pit somewhere in the site of Argus that you have to find. And uh, indeed, the genetic material of Argus could have been gathered up and, and put in local wildlife, gadflies, cows, peacocks, whatever. And so it becomes a sort of distributed sensor net that the, this whole area, in the same way the whippoorwills are the guardians of Dunwich, you have uh, these peacocks and, and, and flies and everything else. The whole ecosystem is one eye. Uh, each animal is an eye of Argus and it's, uh, it's watching you and that can uh, give you that sense. I just want to quote Aeschylus. Uh, and this of course is something that we do every, every week on the show, yes, but it's, it's, it's quite the Aeschylusation. Exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, this is why Ovid was exiled to the edge of the black sea, by the way, was doing exactly that joke. Yeah. So this is EO talking in, in Prometheus bound. She says, Oh earth, I am fearful when I behold that myriad-eyed herdsman. He travels onward with his crafty gaze upon me. Not even in death does the earth conceal him. But passing from the shades, he hounds me, the forlorn one, and drives me famished along the sands of the seashore. The waxen pipe drones forth in accompaniment, a clear-sounding slumberous strain. And so Argus is ha still haunted by Hermes' magical pipe. But when he shows up, you have that sort of, oh, what's that? A mysterious piping? Oh, look, we're back in Lovecraft country. This combination uh, vibe that even after you smashed his head in with a rock, he's still watching you, still following you. He just, his consciousness just springs into the fly or wherever is, I think it's it's the best part of Argus, even yeah. uh, better than the hundred eyes, you know, showing up in your, you know, arms and wherever else. Right. And since we mentioned Cronenberg already, and I, I would be inclined to go, well, you know, the gadfly, if it lays its eggs in the right person, uh, you know, the, the eyes can grow there. And once eye number 100 opens, it's Argus again. And, you know, maybe he's fated to have Hermes come after him and smash Good him on news, the head. Those eyes that were laid in your flesh have burst. They were eggs after all. <laughs> yes. And I also like the image of perhaps Argus, uh, you know, in a, in his outer dark version can pluck one of his eyes out and just leave it somewhere as a mm. little biological security camera. And if you find it, uh, you can smush the eye. He regrows a new one, but he's seen everything up until the point where you found the eye. And, uh, you know, uh, ha having, you know, ears on you, I think, is uh, nowhere near as scary as uh, having eyes on you. Eyes are just fundamentally creepier than, than ears for some reason, even though they, you know, provide us so many wonderful things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the goopiness. Uh, well, many eyes will be upon us if we do not get to our final, uh, most uh, exciting uh, segment, the one we've been saving for the end of the episode. So let's do just that.
Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Johannes Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more for Ken's Bookshelf. Now, uh, those of you who've been monitoring your social media can know that due to Omicron travel restrictions, you, along with all of the rest of the Pelgrains who were planning to go to Dragon Meat, had to cancel at the last minute because basically the travel restrictions were such that short trips in and out trips are like nope forget about it two days of of waiting around for tests out of a five-day trip means you don't get to have a trip right so this is a matter of of some uh disappointment because that would mean that for the second year in a row there's no ken's london book hall where you go to treadwells and foils and bring back the you know this is the the great origin story really of the whole podcast is in in your uh, book shopping and talking about the books that you've gotten. And uh, the idea for the podcast was born all these years ago uh, with us hanging out, talking around uh, Simon's table at uh, Dragon Meat. But this time around, you had a great idea. You took the time machine and you went to other dimensions using the uh, time machine special bookstore finding homing device. And you brought (laughs) back a bunch of volumes from Myriad other realities and dimensions. So we get to have the segment after all. They're just not from this earth. So these are not going to be on the Goodreads list because Goodreads <laughs> is very vigilant about only books from our timeline and reality. But you can describe them uh, for us now. And I think we'll hear, as usual, the sound of you lovingly caressing the book. So let's just jump right in uh, with the first of these, which is Island of Cats by Ben Johnson. Yeah, Ben Johnson, famously a uh, playwright, a uh, rival of Shakespeare. He wrote a earlier play uh, with Thomas Nash called The Isle of Dogs, for which Thomas Nash was arrested and did hard time, and Ben Johnson dodged that bullet. He was famously very classically educated and used to make fun of Shakespeare for not knowing any Greek and was sort of a jerk about that. But he was always trying to bring the classic theater to the masses of London. And in this play, he is, in fact, doing a redress of the frogs, by Aristophanes, which, as we we all know, is about the god Dionysus traveling to Hades to bring back poets from Hades because all the poets in Greece are terrible, and he wants new, better poets from the land of the dead. And it's a road movie, and it's a hilarious comedy bit, and then it's an excuse to slag off on all of Aeschylus's fellow playwrights. 
all of which appeal greatly to Johnson. So this is his final salvo. It was uh, uh, written and performed in 1602. Uh, his final salvo in what's called the War of the Theaters or the Poetomachia, in which a lot of other playwrights took runs at Ben Johnson in poetry and in plays, especially uh, Decker, Marston, and Middleton, who are all piling on Ben Johnson. And uh, scholars believe maybe Shakespeare stayed out of it, <laughs> being at that point still pretty young and new to the biz. But either way, it was a it was a big scandal towards the end of 1598-99. Uh, uh, this is when Shakespeare is writing Julius Caesar. So we have Johnson doing The Frogs, and The Island of Cats is uh, like The Frogs are in The Frogs. It's that first bit where Dionysus, uh, in this case, accompanied by the muse Thalia, who is often seen as a, uh, a stand-in for Queen Elizabeth, goes to Hades to get better playwrights than Decker and Marston and Middleton, and they all make fun of them. And as they are uh, sailing uh, to Hades, they pass an island of cats, and the cats meow at them uh, to make fun of the notion that reciting poetry is is in, in any way meaningful. And so uh, Dionysus and Thalia try and do especially bits from Decker and Marston Middleton, and then the cats just go meow, 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 and it's hilarious, and everyone enjoys it. And so the rest of it is Dionysus and Thalia talking to other dead playwrights in Hades. So uh, Thomas Nash, who I mentioned, died in prison after writing Isle of Dogs with Johnson, Christopher Marlowe, uh, Edmund Spencer, Sir Philip Sidney, and Thomas Green, all of whom had died uh, in a few years before then. The thought was maybe the English theater is dead. Maybe it died with Marlowe. And so this is Johnson getting to do riffs on their plays and then always, you know, kicking uh, Decker or Middleton in the head um, by comparing them to Edmund Spencer or even uh, Thomas Nash. And so it's a, it's, it, it was very mean. It was very funny, did big business and then was shut down immediately when someone thought, Hey, Thalia is a lot like Queen Elizabeth. And I don't think we ha want to play where she goes to hell. What the hell's going on with you, Johnson? And so once more, he had to go into hiding and it was a big thing. So it was good fun. But uh, even in that timeline, it's not an easy play to find. Our, for example, Isle of Dogs is lost in our timeline. So there we are. Next, we come to Equipoise by Jane Austen. This, of course, is the classic. It's the novel that in most timelines with a Jane Austen, uh, people are always on about and they're always remaking because it is the novel in which Jane Austen, unlike our Jane, our sweet, beautiful Jane, who died at, I believe, 41, she lived a few years longer and she wrote the great love triangle novel. This Equipoise is about uh, the heroine Sophie Clark. And did I cure Jane Austen's Addison's disease? Of course, I did not. Did I make sure that she saw a doctor who did cure her Addison's disease? Absolutely, I did. So she finishes Sanditon. Then she writes Equipoise. Sophie Clark is a character who is torn between two suitors, the rich baronet's son Pelham and the goodly curate Green. And both of them are super hot. And both of them are respectful to her, but respectful in different Metiers. So we have sort of an arrogant Darcy type and we have a good hearted uh, Colonel Cayley type and one heroine who has to pick between them. And uh, there's a lot of timelines in which she died before she finished Equipoise. And uh, it's even more than Edwin Drood and everyone's like fighting over who would Sophie pick. At the end, uh, she picks Green over Pelham, but it's because Pelham goes off to the Napoleonic Wars and is killed. So it's kind of a cop out even for her, but the, the story is basically the moment of equipoise where 
even her intellect, even her heart, even her animal instincts can't determine which is a proper suitor, which implies that maybe there's lots of possible suitors out there for everybody. So it was uh, more of Jane's sort of uh, subtle, beautiful uh, proto-feminism. And also it's amazingly funny because it's Jane Austen. Just a great novel. Really recommend you read it. Oh, that's right. You can't. It's in a parallel universe. Right. And I would imagine when you're getting books in parallel universes, perhaps there's not necessarily this one, but you may find other ones where it ends differently oh, in yeah. different timelines. Yeah. There's there's on- at least three solutions to Edwin Drew, depending on which timeline you, you find it in. Well, now on to more recent nonfiction. And uh, in our universe, I would know which Wild Bill this is, but I don't know. Uh, Wild Bill's Culper Ring by Sonia Purnell. Well, this is Wild Bill Donovan, not Wild Bill Hickok. Sonia Purnell is, as she is in our timeline, primarily a historian of espionage. And in this one, this is the timeline where uh, Lord Halifax neutralized the UK uh, in 1940 when he took over instead of Churchill. The Japanese had a little more strategic running room as a result, but they were able to knock off the French and Dutch colonies. But the big change happened during the war in China when an earlier Soviet intervention humiliated the Japanese army sufficiently that the Navy was put in charge of Japan's strategic direction. And so the Navy planned out Pearl Harbor uh, with a more aggressive uh, goal. Um, Yamamoto famously wanted the army to follow up and land on Hawaii. The army said, no way, we have to invade China some more. In this case, the Navy was able to neutralize uh, the Panama Canal and block it. The Arias government in Panama was already pretty pro-fascist. That, you know, uh, turns uh, the key on that. And they occupy Hawaii. And this is about Wild Bill Donovan, then as as in our timeline, the head of the OSS, and the uh, urban espionage ring that he had to set up and run from many, many miles away uh, from the Pacific coast of America to to keep his spy ring in operation in Japanese-occupied Honolulu, which rapidly became even more terrible than even the British occupation of New York, because, of course, the army was right. You can't supply Hawaii. You're insane. Why would you try that? And so the situation in Hawaii gets ever more grim and horrible, and this is about the grim horror of Donovan's Culper Ring, named, of course, after George Washington's spy ring in New York City against the hated British. This is Donovan's spy ring against the Japanese occupiers uh, in an alternate World War II. Now, one great thing about uh, trans-dimensional book shopping is if you have a favorite author and they don't write quite enough books for you in, in their own timeline, you can seek alternates elsewhere, which brings us to uh, our mutual favorite, Adrian Mayer, and her alternate reality book, The Yeti War. Yeah, the Yeti War is um, from a timeline in which uh, Nehru uh, died in prison. Again, hated British. It's a theme. And as a result, uh, Chakravarti Rajagopalachari, or Rajaji, as he is called, even in India, they find that name a bit of a mouthful, becomes the first prime minister of India. He is more anti-communist than Nehru was. And uh, so he does not have the license Raj. He, He knits India into... Uh, the American, especially capitalist world system much sooner. And he also opposes China during the Korean War and begins a campaign to keep Tibet uh, neutral and at least plausibly independent that in our world, Nehru rejected the possibility of doing. And Rajaji, by the way, did support. So the Yeti War is what they named the sort of smoldering hot cold war that began during the Korean War in Tibet and lasted uh, until the end of Rajaji's uh, time in office in the 60s. And it was called the Yeti War because you could see its footprints everywhere, but you couldn't prove it was real. (laughs) 
And uh, Adrian Mayer takes as her sort of insight into this, the CIA's operations in the Yeti War, and specifically their operations via our old buddy from the podcast, Tom Slick, who was an American Yetiologist who just happened to have a lot of high-powered oil company and CIA connections who went in looking for Yetis. And so she starts with a big exploration of the Yeti myth of um, Tom Slick's operations of the CIA's operations in Tibet, and then ties that into the Indian government's operations and their sort of, I don't want to say exaltation, but their adoption of the Yeti as sort of a cultural symbol of resistance against uh, the Chinese. It's a great political history. It's a great spy history. It's a great ethnology, anthropology. It's just uh, like the wonderful polymath and perfect author, Adrian Mayor. This is a, a book that recapitulates all of her various interests and skills uh, in a really exciting path. So whether you wanted to read about uh, CIA Project Circus that was supporting the Tibetan freedom fighters, or whether you wanted to read about uh, Yeti hunting, or whether you wanted to read about uh, Indian party politics and anti-Maoism, it's all in there. It's all good. And you've nicely balanced this pile of books between the various themes of your book buying, as you would get in a real London book hall. So we move from history and espionage uh, now uh, to the occult and mysticism with the internment diaries of Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin. Yeah, and uh, I I don't know. Have we done a segment on Saint Martin? I feel like we have. We've talked about Martinism, but yeah. not uh, him specifically. Yeah, Martin uh, Saint Martin has a sort of a um, magical Freemasonry that he developed uh, based on the teachings of a guy named Pasquale who disappeared in the West Indies, very excitingly. And so Martinism becomes the substrate of a lot of French occult thought in our history. He is uh, interned between 1793 and 1794 in his hometown of Amboise when the revolution comes to Amboise and they say, that guy's got a duh in his name. He's an <laughs> aristocrat. Get him. But once they do, they realize, well, we've just got this weird Freemason aristocrat. What are we going to do with him? So eventually they send him out to teach school in Amboise and uh, he does a fine job and everyone likes him. And then the revolution elects him to local government because he's so trustworthy and was such a great teacher. So this is the kind of guy that San Martin was. His internment diaries are sort of half, you know, oh, this is just going to give me a great excuse to read more books. And so it becomes sort of a occult pathworking book that is about going through the contents of his own library. Francis Yates theorized that this is him developing Memory Palace, the art of the Memory Palace that uh, she uh, posed as the as the central concept of the of Renaissance occult. She brings that in. There, there's sort of a anything you want to find in Martin, you can find because the diaries are, I don't say disorganized, but I'm going to say disorganized. So <laughs> they're really more of a raw material for getting stuff out of than a read it front to back kind of a thing. But if you're interested in the notion of using your own library as a memory palace for magical pathworking, all of which were on the back of the book and explain why I bought it, this is what you want. But, you know, as with many seminal tomes of the occult, when you open them up, eh, not quite enough there there for, um, uh, for, for what you might have wanted. Right. Uh, now, if you think that Colin Wilson was prolific, uh, think of how prolific Colin Wilson's across all timelines were. This brings us to The Extraordinary Guest, Possession in Cambridge by Colin Wilson. Yeah, um, Colin Wilson, of course, famously investigated the occult through the lens of his own belief that there was a thing called Faculty X, which was a higher human level of achievement, ability, and artistic sensitivity that great artists can achieve or crazy people can achieve, but that it is our goal as occult scholars to try and turn on in our lives to make us truly awake and truly understand the world. And he became interested in this timeline 
with the uh, figure Edmund Gurney, who was one of the founding members of the uh, Society for Psychical Research. His training was in the philosophy of music, which is another connection that he has with Wilson. He uh, believed in something very similar to Faculty X, a nascent ability in all people, and believed that it could be unlocked by hypnosis. In our timeline, he dies in 1888, uh, very early, possibly by suicide. In the timeline that Wilson wrote this in, he survived to be part of the SPR's investigation of the phony spirit medium Eusapia Palladino, but Gurney, because he'd been being hypnotized so much and was hypnotizing everybody, fell into trances. And at one point, you know, it, it sort of turned their investigation of Paladino into a circus. And it turns out that uh, as Wilson, to his manful credit, admits that Gurney's hypnotist was a guy named George Albert Smith, who was a stage hypnotist. That's where he got him. But he also said, well, people are here for a show. I'll give them a show. And so trying to sort out what was uh, Smith's art and artifice, what was Gurney's wanting to believe in Faculty X, and what is the genuine psychic phenomena, even if Palladino herself is a phony, is what Wilson is doing uh, with the, the story. And of course, The Extraordinary Guest is about the spirit that possessed Edmund Gurney and uh, sadly caused him to take his own life uh, after the Smith imposture was revealed and his career was blown up and destroyed in 1895. But that's what... Wilson was looking at was this person who sort of to Wilson's mind very much resembled Wilson and all the horrible uh, problems he got into by not having boundaries. Now here's another uh, classic name popping up uh, from another dimension. This is Brad Steiger's the Hyde Park Phantom. And again, pick it up off the shelf. This was used. I would not have bought it new even in 1967 when Brad Steiger wrote it. It's about the Hyde Park in London, not the Hyde Park in Chicago or New York. And it is like all Brad Steiger books. You pick it up thinking this is going to be great. And you realize, oh, but Brad Steiger's writing it. So <laughs> it's, I mean, it tells the story of the, the Hyde Park Phantom, which was in this timeline, at least a 1890s, uh, sort of a Spring Heel Jack figure. Lots of people tied him into Spring Heel Jack as the 40th studies moved on. But in uh, 1967, when uh, Steiger wrote it, we're in a sort of a, a moment where he's being seen again. And so similar to the Highgate vampire, there's sightings of this uh, figure around Hyde Park and people are, you know, remembering the old 1890s to 1900s uh, story of the Hyde Park Phantom. Steiger manages to, I mean, in the, in a book that mentions Sherlock Holmes, Karnacki, the ghost breaker and Arthur Mackin, and is still padded and unsatisfying. Well, it said Bride Steiger right on the cover. In any timeline, I should have known what that meant. You know, buy it used and buy it in paperback. Now, uh, when we come to a Peter Aykroyd book, even in our timeline, my question is always fiction or nonfiction. And uh, now that we've introduced another timeline, that is all the more true. Uh, this is Moontopia by Peter Aykroyd. Yep. Uh, this is a, a novel, but like a lot of Aykroyd's novels is in 95. This is in the era when he's writing uh, Dan Leno and the Limehouse Golem and Hawksmoor. The novels are very much interwoven with actual fact. And so you get research dumps, but they're done actually well, which is, well, it says Peter Aykroyd right on the cover, a similar theory to our Brad Steiger, but the opposite one. Uh, this is about the results of uh, the work of a guy named Francis Godwin. And he lived from 1562 to 1631. He was in our timeline as well. And he wrote a moon voyage called Man in the Moon as Domingo Gonzalez, a, a nobleman of Spain. And he said, this guy, Gonzalez, flies to the moon on magic geese. And uh, he discovers inside the moon that there's a utopia. 
And uh, the moon people keep their utopia by whenever they have a bad or naughty child, they go down to Earth and they swap it for a good child. So it's moon changelings. And that's how they keep their utopia going. So Godwin's uh, utopia is weird and strange. And for several hundred years, people thought it was actually written by a Spanish guy. And only later did they figure out it was by Francis Godwin. The, the great scholar John Wilkins uh, actually was very much influenced by uh, Godwin when he wrote his own discovery of a world in the moon. Uh, so it was a big deal. Ackroyd takes the notion of Godwin's trip to the moon and the notion that moon children were being left on earth as changelings, bad moon children. And it becomes a novel. It's similar to Hawksmoor where you have a modern character. It's a modernist novel, lots of, you know, fractured uh, perspective the, the modern day character is sort of discovering this heritage of moon children that have been causing trouble on the earth for 300 years. And then it's also flashing back to Godwin. Why does Godwin write this under another name? What's going on in the 17th century? So it's a historical mystery. It's a occult conspiracy novel, and it's a cracking good adventure. And because uh, Godwin is Godwin and uh, Ackroyd is Ackroyd, there's also a constructed mu musical moon language in it. Uh, and that is the key to the mystery is to solve this musical conlang that uh, Godwin introduced as the language of the moon. And so, again, uh, there, there are weird uh, echoes. I got these in different worlds, Robin, but weird uh, musical occultism is showing up in uh, both the Colin Wilson book and in this one. So stuff's going on. All I can say when I, when I book hunt, I book hunt. Yeah. Well, moving between dimensions, even more so than just moving in time creates those sort of ripple synchronicity effects. So, right. It does. Yeah. Uh, you might also want to watch your library for eyes of uh, Argus Panoptes. Now you sent me an image of this on the Slack channel. This has, this is a well-thumbed paperback. But I'm excited that you got it because this is uh, Sandworms of Dune by Philip Jose Farmer. Yeah, this is from a, a near alternate. As we all know, Dune was rejected by every publisher Herbert sent it to. It was a fix-up of two uh, lengthy stories in, I think, Analog. And finally, it was accepted by Chilton, which then and now is only famous for publishing car repair books. The Chilton Manual, if you ever fixed your own car, you had one or you knew someone who had one. And that was what they did. But for some reason, they published Dune and they published it in a giant hardback in 1965 that cost $6, which in 1965 was like 50 bucks. So it won the Nebula, but it was not a breakout bestseller at all. And in this timeline, Frank Herbert got, I don't know if he got drunk at a convention or he just was, you know hopped up on Michael Moorcock, but he, he wrote a big screed saying that Dune was going to be the great new thing and everyone could throw uh, Tolkien in the trash. And that made Professor Tolkien angry. In our timeline, Tolkien was not a fan of Dune anyway. He found it ridiculously angering, I think were his words, but he did not write a review of it because he didn't want to, you know, torpedo the career of a, of a young budding novelist. Well, in this one, he says, well, if the young buddy novelist is going to try and climb on my back, I'll torpedo his career. He writes a savage takedown of Dune that prevents the sort of mass market that is just at that moment idolizing Tolkien like no one has ever idolized anybody from picking up Dune. They're like, well, if the professor hates it, then the heck with Dune. Chilton is not able to, you know, release it in paperback because they don't have it. They sell it to like um, uh, Putnam, I think, in paperback. 
Putnam tries to make bank on the controversy, can't do it. Basically, Dune sinks into obloquy. After Star Wars comes out, and more even after Empire Strikes Back comes out, Putnam is looking around and they're like, what do we own that's science fiction-y and on a desert planet? Oh, this thing Dune that no one liked. Let's publish it again. They republish it after Empire, but sadly, Frank Herbert dies in 1986, just like he did in our timeline. And they're like, oh my God, they've published Dune. It's now a big bestseller, but they don't have any way to complete the work. So they turn to beloved jobbing posthumous collaborator, Philip Jose Farmer, and who is also a Putnam author, and say, we have this mass of notes left by Frank Herbert about his crazy universe. Can you turn this into a sequel? And Farmer says, can I? And he writes, <laughs> Sandworms of Dune, which is like Philip Jose Farmer novels, full of weird backstory and great adventure and crazy sex. It does well. It does not necessarily, uh, I think Farmer writes one last one, um, uh, Star Emperor of Dune, which is the last in the trilogy, but that, you know, sort of finishes it off. The Dune bubble has burst. People are, you know, not paying attention to Tatooine anymore. They've moved on with their lives. Star Emperor of Dune comes out in 1990. That sort of finishes it off. Farmer goes off to other things, but, uh, Sandworms, I think is, is really, it's a great sequel. It, it's got everything you know and love. It's got clones. It's got, weird trans species sex. It's got uh, drug trips on the spice. It, it's just what you want out of a Dune novel. It's a shame that Herbert didn't write any other sequels, though. Now we come to a graphic novel. DC, of course, exists in many universes. As uh, in all good universes. And uh, that's where uh, Batman 1968 by Toni Morrison and Brian Stelfreeze comes from. Yeah, uh, this is um, sort of the result of a couple of things. Some changes that happen in our world. Uh, Jeanette Kahn becomes publisher of DC at a remarkably young age, um, in her twenties and immediately begins to try and turn the, the iceberg around. And, uh, in 1993, uh, she launches, uh, the Vertigo line in our timeline. A young editor named Paul Levitz becomes editor of Batman in 1977 and begins to work for authors rights at DC and also publishing new takes and cool versions of other characters. And in this universe, after the crisis, Paul Levitt says, well, we're rebooting everybody. We can't reboot Batman per se, but what if we do a black Catwoman like Eartha Kitt in the TV show? And that becomes a thing. So black Catwoman is uh, the new post-crisis Catwoman. And he's inspired to do that because Eartha Kitt uh, autobiography in 1976 was not handled by Chicago conservative publisher Henry Regnery, as it was in our timeline. Weird choice, but whatever. <laughs> but by Random House, because an editor at Random House named Tony Morrison had met Eartha Kitt during their uh, civil rights work, admired and loved her, as all people do. So she got the rights for Kitt's autobiography for Random House in 1976. So Kitt and uh, Morrison were fast friends. Uh, Morrison, of course, is going on to become a great American novelist. And after uh, the uh, L.A. riots, after a lot of kerfuffles and things, Jeanette Kahn is trying to do a good social conscious DC book. Again, in our timeline, she launched the Milestone line. Uh, she's looking around. She finds that she has a, a new black artist named Brian Stelfreeze, who is a rising figure, very impressive line work. And she's heard through the grapevine that Morrison and Kit are still friends and both are fans of Black Catwoman. And so she says... What if we do a, a one-off, they don't call them Elseworlds yet, but 
Let's see if we can get Toni Morrison, who again is still, you know, she hasn't quite written Beloved yet, get her to do a uh, a Batman story, any kind of Batman story she wants. And Toni Morrison, of course, is excited to do it. Um, and she does Batman 1968, which is about a version of Batman during the riots in Gotham City in 1968 and his discovery that, oh, it's weird that I, Batman, have mostly been fighting crime in the white neighborhoods. And Catwoman becomes sort of his liminal figure introducing him into the fact that, oh, you think one uh, kid seeing his parents murdered is bad. What about generations of kids seeing their parents oppressed and murdered? What do you think that does to a city? Batman. And so it, it becomes a very uh, cool thing. There's a, a, an actual haunting in it that's uh, the figure of the woman who saw her son uh, gunned down by the cops. And so she's a ghost. And so Batman can't punch her and he has to understand it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story. Stelfreeze's art is incredible. I don't know that Morrison really nails Batman's dialogue. I think she does a much better job with Catwoman and with the ghost. But again, Batman's still Batman and he's, it's still great. It's, you know, um, and it's an interesting counterpoint in that timeline to Dark Knight Returns, which still comes out and launches this career of standalone Batman books. But in many ways, this is a response to Dark Knight Returns. It's, it's Morrison sort of coming back at Miller's uh, hyper uh, libertarian Batman. So it's, it's kind of an interesting philosophical dialogue as well as being a crackingly beautiful book. Now I, I know why you picked up this one, which I think normally a book by this title by another author in whatever timeline you wouldn't have gotten, but we've got uh, voodoo dolls for wellness by Jessica Beale. I will say two things about this book. One, it is from an alternate timeline where Justin Timberlake stayed with Britney Spears and Jessica Beale reinvented herself as a wellness guru along the lines of Gwyneth Paltrow. And second, it is copiously illustrated. And finally, the, the strangest title of all, although I see why you got it, Homeostasis and Recurrence in Great Power Relations, 1812 to 1896 by Kenneth Haidt. Yep. This apparently is uh, the book that I turned my doctoral thesis into in a timeline where I went to the University of Texas for grad school, as I almost did in this timeline, after the uh, Bush recession made it fairly clear I was not going to uh, step right into a uh, cracking great job right out of uh, my master's. So instead, I stayed in Chicago and became a beloved podcaster. But uh, in this timeline, I went to Texas, got my doctorate, and my thesis was about, uh, as it says on the tin, homeostasis and recurrence in great power relations. This is the University of Texas Press. This is the sort of the first version of it. It was republished as Eagle versus Lion with a paperback uh, version and a much hotter cover. That did better. But the basic thesis here is that there is a degree to which, and this is using it as a case study, but the theory is that any two great powers, their relations basically don't change. That there, unless you obliterate one of them, their relations with all their rival great powers are basically going to remain the same. And I picked the easy case, which is America and Great Britain, because you have a war that almost didn't happen in 1812 and a war that almost did happen over Guyana in 1896. And it's the notion of how that power relationship changes. And although there's superficial, vast changes in the relationship, especially during and after the Civil War, that the actual rhythm of, of their relationship doesn't alter. And there's a final chapter where I argue that the open competition of the 19th century becomes a sub-altern competition or a submerged competition in the 20th, where Britain tries to exploit the U.S. in World War I, and the U.S. turns it around in World War II and 
basically strips Britain's empire from it uh, financially. But this is basically the easy sell, the the the, the clearest example of my thesis. Um, and it's about the 19th century Anglo-British relations. And look, Robin, Canada's in it. So that's nice. It's very exciting. Now, you would think as a writer that being able to go to alternate timelines and pick up your works in other realities would save time. But I, I understand that that's just a giant hassle and you actually constantly have other Kennethites showing up asking when you're going to be done things. Yeah. I mean, the, the trouble is with any bunch of parallel selves is establishing which is Kennethite prime and which are not. And right now I'm the one with the time machine, but you know, that only gets you so far. And I don't want to tell tales out of school, but some of those Ken Heights, they slack off a lot. They're just sleeping on the couch with their cat. They're hanging out in bars. You know, they're not uh, doing the good work of writing uh, award-winning games or saving the time stream. So, right. and and the one prolific one is writing. I'm sure exciting for international relations books. But yeah, I not, mean, yeah, not that helpful for you. It's terrific. He's he's the next uh, Walter Russell Mead in many ways. But on the other hand, it. It, it butters no vampire scones, let's say that. Well, Ken, uh, because we weren't at Dragon Meat, there's no, uh, once again, no Ken and Robin live to drop as our uh, Christmas present to uh, listeners. So I hope uh, everybody enjoys this substitute. Uh, this is not our last episode before uh, the holiday, though. So we'll be back next week uh, with more similar nonsense, perhaps even about this dimension. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep your many eyes on the survival of this podcast by joining such panoptic backers as... Oren Gashuri. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Phil Groff, Liz and Siski, and Terry Robinson. Gift your favorite co-listener with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. With such bookish designs as three points in library use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>